episode. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back, Zach. <laughs> what a way to start it. <laughs> no, that was hey. great. Yeah. Oh, it's Monday. I'm here. You have a Micah lot of energy for Monday, by the way. Are separated. You guys were separated this weekend after not being separated. How is that? It's true. Now there's a great gust of wind between me and him, also known as the American Northeast. That was my favorite trainer card in Pokemon training card game. It was really, really nice to do gust of wind. Gust of wind? I'm not sure I had that one. I'll have to look at my binder that I still have next to me at all times. Yeah, pro tips to all of you listeners that play the Pokemon TCG. Gust of Wind and Bill, also Professor Oak. They're basic Pokemon cards. They're old school, but they could still kick the asses of all the new ones. It's Game of Owns. <laughs> We're a podcast for your ear faces. Yes. I'm just thinking of making the sound effect that would accompany this chapter, uh, you know, when they're climbing the rocks. Jon Snow, of course, we're speaking of. And a guy named Stone Snake, who, mm-hmm. what a name. What a name. Can we just. Talk about how cool a name that is for a guy who can climb stones like he were just a snake slithering in the grass. Except it's ice, so it's not really grass. He's 50. Looks around 50, right? Yeah, he's, he's about pretty 50. old. Yeah. But he's got that old man strength, you know? He's just terribly <laughs> strong. He's a wise and- yeah. yeah, he's getting shit done. And I, I think he was the perfect companion for John to take along because what happens later in the chapter... That wouldn't have been able to happen. I feel like if someone with a little bit more stubbornness were with them, they would have just insisted that he take care of business instead of hanging out. Yeah. You know, there are so many guys who Jon Snow is with who are assholes or who are more belligerent or more, you know, they, they, they just don't get along. And, and Stone Snake seems to have this cool regard for Jon. Not, he doesn't treat him like special the way that, you know, Old Bear might be accused of. But at the same time, he kind of lets him take his captive, lets him do his thing in this chapter, and then just goes off with the men without a second word. So, I don't know, it's kind of this this interesting respect that the, he's, got, he's got for him, and it works. We're going to read these comments? I think we should give Wicknet commenters a little love, a little slash love, don't you think? Yes, we had a Wicknet comment uh, just, you know, before we begin our analysis, and this is by Turi, who, uh, totally, totally awesome comment here. Uh, they say in the next chapter, meaning this one, John 6 in Clash of Kings, watch out for the story of Bale the Bard. A guy with a harp walks into Winterfell playing somebody else, stealing a maiden, plus sons slaying fathers, hiding in the crypts, a woman jumping from a tower, a Bolton flaying. Remember it, and you'll <laughs> see what I mean. Yes, yes, Turi. This chapter has all of those things and more. There's wind. There's yes. also wind and and shadow cats. And we're not talking about the X-Man shadow cat. What I'm interested, <laughs> though, is I want to meet uh, Bale the Bard, who is the long uh, distant cousin of Beetle the Bard. That's what I thought, right? I was thinking, I was like, mm, you're missing one <laughs> syllable, buddy. <laughs> Man, you know, I, I'm surprised that you didn't pick this up, Micah, but uh, actually, Bale the Bard is also, uh, you just spent a weekend with him. Is that right? That is. Uh, Bale the Bard, if you'll notice, um, when he went to Winterfell, posed as a singer called Sigaric, hello, of Skagos, <laughs> which, which is just, uh, it's, it's, it's actually Swedish. Uh, Selena could tell you this in an instant if she were here. Oh, it's yeah. actually uh, Sir or Sig Eric of Skogos, which is you know my old school name in Old English. I see. Um, mm-hmm. So it's well, me, guys. Don't but you I, I, uh, dress up as singers also and travel about the country? 
Yes, yes, I do, and and and, and I make I make women or maidens cry. It's it's, it's <laughs> they just say what cry. kind of tears, ladies. They just cry. Just but tears in all joking aside, this man, this Bale the Bard, is yet another one of these stories. Um, I was going to say like Old Nan would tell, but but no, Old Nan did not tell this one. This is a, a story that that John Snow did not hear before. And all joking aside, he was a much cooler cat than I could ever hope to be because he really just ah won and owned everything that he touched um, up until the moment of his death. So, uh, you know, I'm going to pour one out for Bale when we get to that part in this chapter. That's for sure. Well, I think Bale the Bard story is bullshit. What do you think, Micah? <laughs> <laughs> be- because of what, though? Because of the fact that he messed around with the Starks? No, I don't think that there's... I, I You know what? It was written in the book, and so obviously George found a purpose to pin it. Drop my phone. Obviously, George found purpose to write it down, so that made sense. And so we can say, okay, if this happened, he – I mean, Eric's right. He was pretty heroic in his own way and, and made some cool things happen. But I think that Igret is feeding John a line of bullshit, honestly. I don't think that this is a real story. And if she doesn't know that she's lying, someone lied to her. I, because <laughs> the Starks are pure blood. I have this, oh right. my God, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? <laughs> but 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 I think it's plausible, Zach. I think what you're saying is possible because we don't know exactly why Jon Snow is tempted to let her go at the end. Which I mean, that's what happens at the end of the chapter. He fails to kill her, and and the reasoning is a little shoddy because if he believes this story, um, you know. Then it makes Egret his distant, like, sister, essentially. Um, his long, long distance, many lines removed, relative, because they're both the blood of this wild flower that all Starks, in fact, share wildling blood. Uh, but if he doesn't believe it, um, and, and that's not why he lets her go, there's also the possibility that it's just been so long since he's seen a girl. She is pretty, she's got great teeth, and she just told him a story. It reminds him of, you know, being young and innocent and, and being read a Are story. Are great so. teeth? I think they were pretty crooked. They just happened to be white. They were, they were white, but you know, white, you know which of the All two right. is harder. You know, white white teeth. Well, I would they say didn't is have harder. orthodontics back then, but they did have hygiene. So yeah. yeah. But she, I think that in telling her, in telling Jon Snow this story, she did endear him to her, or somehow it has something to do with her feminine wiles, and they are wiling because. She got away. Well, yeah, it's interesting because we see when when John first lays eyes on her, and obviously people listening, this is the chapter where John is north of the wall, and he comes upon a wild and grit, and she is super effective. Essentially, <laughs> a wild. You know and what grit. I mean? Like this, this is that chapter. At first, I thought it was so cleverly put, so cleverly put. After they made it to the wildling camp, and basically they were protecting a source fire, and they were standing as watchers on the top of this large cliff in the frost fangs. And if they see something, they either make the fire larger or they blow a horn and they signal more more wildlings to come, right? Mm -hmm. When they attacked the camp, I thought it was so, so cool how George slipped her in. It was like, oh, I thought there was only two people here. There's a guy over here, like, fiddling around with his horn. There's another guy doing something else. And there's this long, red-haired dude sleeping. I want to kill him last or whatever, you know? But (laughs) that was her. Exactly. I was not expecting it. I... 
Um, definitely, I mean, the way you're going, it seems like a fairly standard beginning to a chapter. They see a fire. They send two scouts, you know, to go climb the rocks. John's climbing the rocks for upwards of two hours. And he comes upon the camp, and they're like, just like, oh, yeah, there's going to be two people. There's going to be one with the fire and one with the horn. Um, they get there, and, of course, there's three. And it's it, it kind of – from the beginning, John is off kilter a little bit because he, he, he doesn't know – you know, it wasn't necessarily what was supposed to happen. George points out through John the fact that John had a lot of respect for the guy with the horn because once he sees him, instead of going for a weapon, he goes for the horn. Exactly. Guys, I got to tell you, I would have gone for the sword. <laughs> I, I don't probably would have went for the horn too, though, but I think that's your best chance of survival, right? Like more people coming to help you? I think at this point your life is forfeit when you see a guy six feet from you wanting to kill you. But that's that's exactly why it was so important that he went for the horn is because – Really, it is courageous. He, I, I think either way you're dead because of the harsh reality of, of where they are and, and who they're fighting against. Uh, I think that right. guy was dead no matter what. But, but the fact that he got so close is worrying and it just builds tension because the horn was up against his lips, yeah. you know? He didn't wet him first though. That's what was the problem. <laughs> he, 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 he tried blowing and it just made a whoo and it didn't, yep. didn't sound like much more than an owl because he didn't wet his lips. Is that an owl? Uh, that's, must that's not an be ad anyone for, attacking. Now we segue into our ad for chapstick. Um, <laughs> chapstick. If you've ever seen the Mothman prophecies or whatever, don't Chap think about chapstick and Richard Gere. <laughs> yeah, scary pink chapstick. I, you know, I always think of chap. I always think of the Mothman whenever I hear or say chapstick. Thank you, Zach, for confirming that you're not. That I'm not <laughs> you the really only one. better be getting some money for all of this promotion. Uh, we are. Well, yeah, no, no money. <laughs> really Richard great Gere, everybody. imagery though in this chapter, um, and one thing in particular caught my attention. Uh, when they were actually climbing to get up to where the wildlings were, uh, it was mentioned that the wind cut like a knife and shrilled in the night like a mother mourning her slain children. There's something else about a mother in here, too. <laughs> there was. There was something about it. A little bit more humorous, though. I caught it, and I was like, uh, is that is that a hint? Because John was like, mm, there's no way. You know, I, I never would have thought of my mom up here, right? This is a quote from Stone Snake. The mountain is your mother. This is this is this is Stone that Snake's would be advice. Really fucked up. This, good this, logic. <laughs> this is Stone Snake's advice for not falling, and it's not just don't look down. I mean, if you're climbing a mountain, somebody tells you don't look down. Okay, seems obvious. Does help. Not as much as this. He says the mountain is your mother. Cling to her. Press your face up against her teats, and she won't drop you. Stone Snake, ladies and gentlemen. Um, to which John replies, oh, wittily, I've always wondered who my mother is. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean. I was just like, damn you, George. I know that you're just making a joke, shaking my fist. But is his mother not the mountain? <laughs> like, what are you... Oh, God. Guys, the mountain. Is no way. Mo no. Yeah, that's what no I was way. saying. It would be pretty fucked up if that's true. I don't even know if that's genetically possible. Listen, man, anything Haven't can happen. Haven't you ever seen, uh, what is it, twins? Or is one yeah. of them pregnant there? With Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. Yeah. Listen, are you talking about Junior? Yeah, it's Junior. Oh, He's like, this Ju is not a tumor. Yeah, it's Junior. <laughs> junior. He's pregnant. Okay, Junior. Uh, forgive me for my talk mix about up of old. <laughs> we need a freaking Junior slash, like, uh, what is it called? Jingle All the Way, where he's hunting for Turbo Man mashup. Turbo Man. So it's terrible. Maybe that's time. the sequel to Junior. We never knew. <laughs> anyway, whatever B or C 80s Arnold Schwarzenegger movie I mixed up, please, uh, I, I apologize to the purists out there. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. correcting me. Um, <laughs> but yes, this is useful advice that John Snowy uses in in his climb. And and look, it's 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 nighttime. There's nothing but moonlight to guide them. And 
And it's really just kind of, it's really dangerous what they're doing. No, it is. It's they're, they're essentially scaling, um, at one point, a slightly non-vertical wall, a steep hill, if you will, with sharp. And they, he kept saying black over and over, which I thought was also great imagery, lending what you were saying earlier, Micah, the black mountain, rimmed in moonlight, the black stone, the black rope. I mean, he was really hammering in this sort of, I don't want to say dismal atmosphere, but it was it was sort of like that. It was just kind of saddening, and, and you knew that it was dangerous what they were doing. And inside of John's head, he's just thinking over and over, all right, one foot in front of the other, I'll be all right. One foot in front of the other, I won't fall down. And I feel like this is a, really the first time in a long time that we've got to see this juvenile sense from John because he's been stuck in command so long for the like this whole book. I think it's a lot similar to book one, John how he's having lots of self-doubt and uh, facing danger, but he powers through it anyway. Mm-hmm. All these uh, these conscious moments, uh, which you just talked about, it reminded me a lot of the Catalan chapter when she went up to the Erie, right? Oh, wow, that's true. And she's with uh, Maya, and yeah. they're, they're kind of scaling up. I don't remember the exact text, but I, it seems to be that there was a lot of the same where they were constantly watching where they were going, making sure that they didn't fall. It was very precarious at certain points. Um, but at the same time, the imagery from that chapter kind of felt a little bit of that here in this chapter as well, because, you know, John mentions that he hasn't seen really any other human beings, uh, since he left the fist of the first men. But mm-hmm. he also talks about all these really amazing things that he has seen, these natural things that he's come across. Yeah, it's really um, – George paints this picture of the very treacherous landscape while at the – you know, and he says things like um, one wrong foot fall will break an ankle or something like this and put your weight above your feet, which I thought was – an interesting way of looking at it. But he also talks about these frozen waterfalls that John has seen and, and, uh, you know, flowers actually in caves and things like that, which is relevant later. But it's really big, dare I say, stark, uh, you know, contrast these two <laughs> things, the, the beautiful flowers that can only grow. And that's the thing about the shadow cats too. Okay. They're living in an environment that is so hostile. Uh, these cats can smell blood from, uh, Egret says six miles away. And only the, the craziest, most, uh, like bent trees can survive here. And, and that's kind of what it takes. This reminds me of the Australian Outback a lot. Um, just (laughs) because not a whole lot can survive and you have to be brutal, which is why kind of having a grit in this chapter is a great juxtaposition of everything that is good and kind and pure in John's heart versus the evil world that they live in. And, you know, just to transition here for a moment, when they first kind of get together, when, when John tells her his name and, and, and all that stuff, she instructs Stone Snake. She says, you'll want to burn those men. And Stone Snake, not to be fooled, says, oh, you know, you want us to make a bigger fire. Clearly that will alert all the other wildlings. That means wildlings are nearby. But I'm thinking, well, no, she could actually genuinely be fearful that these dead men, if not burned, will come back to life because that shit we know happens up north. So you just don't, you just don't know if she's fearful. You know, she doesn't want them to turn. Maybe they turn immediately. We still don't know how that works. Or does she really just want a bigger fire so she gets rescued or whatever? Yeah. I, I think it was genuine. I, I think she really wanted them to be burned because she knew what the alternative would be. Mm-hmm. Well, so does John yeah. too. His burned hand is hurting him all the way up when he's climbing. Uh, so he very keenly remembers what happened with the last dead people he didn't burn. 
But they have a great body disposal system up uh, beyond the wall, though, because <laughs> either you get stripped to the bone by shadow cats or you get reborns, so to speak, uh, as a white. Well, I don't. I wouldn't call it body disposal. I would call it body uh, displacement or replacement. Re- recycling. Re- yeah, yeah, yeah. Recycling. recycling. There you They're go. They're very green <laughs> north of the wall. Um, they are. I, they really depend on the elements. Look, I think what Stone Snake is it Stone Snake? I know I'm thinking it's like Stone Shadows. What Stone Snake does is <laughs> is is really a, a happy medium because. He's rid of the body. They didn't create a bigger fire, but it was the breaking of this body on the rocks that attracted the shadow cats. Now, you know, by the time the rest of the crows arrive, uh, and the sun is slightly about to come up, um, we see there, they see that the, the bodies are picked clean. And, and, and actually, Egrit mentions that these shadow cats will break the bones in half to eat the marrow, the soft bone marrow within. I mean, how? You don't do that? How, no. How hostile is that for a creature that lives in the northern wilderness? Like, that's just very graphic. But those men will not be getting back up and axe-wielding anytime soon, if you'll ask me, or ever again. No, they're deep in the bellies of some big old cat just meowing around the mountainside. And Egrit says, hey, there's worse places to be. <laughs> that's yeah, the whole well, she thing. she was her, referring her, her, to being uh, a white, I, I believe, and I think that's... That's why I think that she was sincere about the entire thing, because with her having so much experience north of the wall, you know, they're around wargs and giants. They they understand. They've probably known for a very long time that this is what happens to your dead. How about the uh, the line that Egret first uh, causes John to speak as it related to uh, perception? You know, she she sure I, I think even from the first moment that she's introduced and she meets John, she's teaching him. You know, when they start talking about you know, Winterfell and, and the fact that, oh, it's to the south and John says, No, it's in the north. Well she says, Anything that's south of the wall is is south, you know. <laughs> and and they start talking about this I this concept of, of perception and it's all about where you're standing, and that even ties into the story about Bale the Bard. Well, it reminded me, I know we've made a few Pokemon references on this show already, but I wanted to compare it to Star Wars. In Return of the Jedi, when Luke is with uh, uh, Obi-Wan's ghost, and Obi-Wan's like, well, it's all in a certain point of view, you know, and he learns that essentially Vader, you know, his father was a good guy once, and it didn't mean he was the same man as he was before. But that's what Ygritte is saying, you know, it all depends on where you're standing, are we good guys? Are we bad? You're from the south. Well, if you're from the south of the wall, you're from the south. That's that's all there is to it. And that line is reiterated, um, I think, when she begins telling her story as well. It's all in where you're standing. It's from a certain point of view. I was just kind of taken aback a bit when their dialogue first began. I'm trying to locate it in the book here real quick. When Stone Snake calls a grit a spear wife, and he's like, she's a spear wife. Look at her. She was about to attack you with that axe. And he's like, well, eh, kicks the axe away. He's like, she's not going to do anything now. And he's like, all right, fine. And John's like, I'm going to take her as a captive. Do you have a name? She's like, a grit. And, you know, she gives him her name. So obviously she's like, all right, I gave you my name. What's your name? He goes, I'm Jon Snow. She goes, an evil name. He goes, <laughs> a bastard name. And then immediately starts telling her his entire family story. A bastard <laughs> name. Pause. My father was Lord Eddard Stark of Winterfell. And it's just boom. I mean, can can we be serious here? And I, I don't think I'm making a stab at the writing of this chapter. But I just feel like the, the cadence of how that w- would go after scaling the mountain and after just literally killing someone. And John killed a man, for Christ's sake. And having him knocked off the side of the, the, the wall 
you know, off the side of the cliff. Do, do you do you think that it makes sense that his conversation would just go into such a congenial, like, let's talk about each other and ourselves? You know, it just well, seemed a little unnatural. If, yeah, if you look at it the way the show does it with her being, oh, just cute as a button uh, and having all that sexual, you know, oomph. He, John hasn't seen a girl in a really long time. So I think some of that may have – I mean I think – I really think that's an, an honest possible factor here where he gives her the benefit of the doubt. He believes she's more innocent than she is. In fact, she was in fact reaching for that axe. And John is able to look past it a lot quicker. I think it's because she's a girl. I think you know, the key, right. though, is not just that she's a girl, but she reminds him of Arya. Yeah, because she's so – I mean he said not in the way that she looks necessarily, but just the, the type of person he could see it in her eyes. Yeah, because Arya's got a wildness about her. And John did have the reference when he was um, looking at her and kind of – George was giving us the physical breakdown of what she looked like and saying that she could be kind of – Plump, I think is what he called her, something like that. Or it could be layers. Or Yeah, he's like, she could be plump, or she's probably as skinny as Arya. So obviously, you know, maybe the congenialness and how quick it transitioned into this kind of conversation is exactly what you're saying. Like, maybe it was just because he was so starved. They were all so starved of being around girls. And I think maybe George is just showing us John's immaturity and, like, a character flaw, essentially. Also, in another way, though, his immaturity, like... uh because he expects the name Stark to mean something uh, to, to, to this wild thing who doesn't live in the Seven Kingdoms. And, I mean, it so happens that she has in her arsenal this perfect story about a Stark right. that, that gets her out of this trouble, which is which is why it's so brilliant. He, he is only telling her because he expects it to matter. He expects her to view him as this honorable person. Oh, you're, you're of a lord's descendant, even though you have a bastard's name. You're this great man who's come to kill me. I should be so thrilled. You know, but really what he does is he, he hands her the key to his heart, uh, essentially in, in, in being able to then tell her story about, a story about the Starks that the Starks themselves don't tell, which is that their blood is tainted. If, if it's to be believed, it's that their blood is, is, is not pure. It's not, it's not Stark. I wouldn't look so much at, the context of the story itself. I, I would almost go back to what you read earlier from Turi on winnerscoming.net. I think it's more about what it could mean for the future. Not, not to dismiss her story, but I think it's more there for the reader than it is for Jon Snow, if that makes sense. I, I oh, think absolutely. That's, that's fair. And Mikey, you've read a little further than us. So I, although I'm disappointed, I will. Uh, yield to, to, to your interpretation, except to say that, you know, the Starks do, as we're seeing, have a magic about them. Bran's got the, the sight for crying out loud, the green sight. And it either comes from the Starks being natural descendants of the, the very first men who've dealt with things like White Walkers, or it comes from wildlings who live north of the wall. And we know that the children of the forest fled north of the wall when they were eradicated from Westeros. So, Either they're descended from the first men who dealt with magic or they're descended from the children of the forest who have magic. What is it about them that links them to their direwolves? What is it about them that gives Bran the green sight? Is it because, you know, there's, they're Starks, but it seemed to me this story really tied in the magic to the Stark bloodline for me better than, uh, the, the story of the first men had. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, honestly. That would probably, maybe be a, like a, a, a revelation in the future of some sort. Does it really have much clout or matter right now? Really? Not really. You know what I mean? It doesn't change much if something happened so, so long ago, but still it's interesting to know about. Right? Yes. 
So let's talk about the story that she tells him, the, uh, the Song of the Winter Rose. The Song of the Winter Rose. Is it a blue rose? It's uncolored. Was it you who said about the wall, the rose and the wall at the, in the Danny chapter? Yeah, it was. Uh, and I also read that passage from the first book when they were talking about uh, Liana's tomb uh, deep beneath Winterfell and how around her neck was sort of this garland of blue roses because, of course, her favorite flower is the blue rose. It was, it was an al- alay. Aloha. <laughs> yeah, she, had, she actually um, went to Hawaii not long before her untimely passing. She did. She's there with JFK and Amelia Earhart. They live happily. That's where she met the Targaryens, and she got a little weird. <laughs> and we are. We're here now. Yeah. Here is um, just kind of my, from, from memory of reading this chapter, uh, in Passion's summary. So, Bale, who is a future king beyond the wall, he's not king beyond the wall yet. He ventures south to Winterfell. Uh, and, and this is due to, I believe it was a... A rivalry of the Starks? No, the Stark – so there's this long rivalry, obviously, because the people north of the Wall uh, are against the people south of the Wall, which are the Starks. And Brandon Stark, the, who is a different Brandon Stark than Brandon the Builder and the other Brandons that we know, different Brandon, calls Bale, calls them uh, Craven. And this somehow mincing of words hurts more than any sword could. So – Bale comes south of the wall, poses as a singer called Sigaric of Skagos, and mm-hmm. he's welcomed into Winterfell because, I mean, this is said even in an earlier Catelyn chapter, which is why I like this, that, that singers and stuff, they just don't come to Winterfell all that often. It's so far north. Very few care to make the journey. So even back then, things were the same, even back then. So he gets welcomed in, and he's got this great singing voice, lovely, lovely singing voice, sings all the greatest songs, new, old, ones he knew, ones he didn't, ones he wrote himself. Brandon, all the hits. All the hits, all the greatest hits. <laughs> uh, I can just see I can just see Charlie Pace writing uh, with his hand on a Sharpie right now, um, which is what I think of any time says greatest hits. So chapstick, greatest hits, there we go. Brandon, <laughs> who loves this guy, this skigeric of of Skagos says, "You name your price, sir. Uh, this is this is just beautiful. It's beautiful." He asks for the finest flower from the Winterfell Gardens, and of course, it just so happens that the winter roses have have just begun to bloom. Uh, so Brandon orders it done. He says, "Oh, men, go to uh, the the gardens and, and and get this rose." The next morning, however, Brandon discovers that his daughter, who as it turns out, is the only heir to the Stark uh, line, or, or not even heir, but she she's the only one who can carry the Stark line. Brandon, as it turns out, doesn't have a male heir and and was is hurting basically for heirs. So she's gone, and in place uh, in her bed is this blue rose that Skigeric, aka Bale, had taken with him. And after a year of searching for his daughter. Brandon is pretty much given up hope. The Stark line, as we all know it, uh, is is dead. Or is going to be dead. And then, you know, it's roughly been a year now. His daughter reappears with a child in Winterfell, and that child, who is the uh, you know son of this Bale, this King North of the Wall, as he later becomes, is the new Stark heir and carries on the Stark lineage. And of course, this is all fiction. This may not have happened. It was just a story from a grit. But if it did happen, 
that's uh, quite a blow, I think, to the Starks. Yeah. What I don't get about it, though, is really the only way that you can technically carry on your line is through a son. It's hard to say. I mean, with name, yes. Aren't there instances of girls who have either – like, or they marry into – like, to get an heir? I'm sure this happened in discussion with Varys at court somewhere. There was some king or someone. They were talking about the female lineage and how certain times a woman will – basically this this question had been answered, the line of succession and how women are either completely excluded from it or not. Maybe an uncle, something like that. Essentially, I guess the purpose, for the purposes of the story though, there was a boy and that's why they were able to continue it. It's like all based on, instead of what would have happened, all based on the fact that it did happen, that there was a boy that they continued. Also, it explains why this story isn't told in Winterfell. Um, you know, kind of in a way. Because- this made me think about... Um- when we were watching season three together and we talked a little bit about what happened in the tent between John and Mance Raider when they met for the first time. And I know that probably a lot of people who are reading along with us now um, may not have, you know, necessarily, it could have been, but may not necessarily have been with us back, um, you know, when we were going through the season. So, this may be spoilerish in some sense, so I just wanted to put that out there and uh, let people know that if they want to uh, jump ahead about sixty seconds. They're more than welcome to. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't think it's gonna it's gonna blow your mind, spoilerish. But I think it goes back to what uh, we were talking about not that long ago uh, with this whole concept of somebody going to Winterfell under the guise of somebody else, and Mance Raider, in fact, is the person who goes to Winterfell as a bard, you know, and he was kind of inspired by Bale the Bard, this this legend, this story that we're talking about, and he did so when Robert um, came to town. And, you know, that scene in the tent between John and Mance Raider in the book is very different. Um, you know, in, in the TV series, a lot of it has to tie into, uh, you know, John not trusting the Night's Watch because of what happened at Craster's Keep with the kids being given away to the White Walkers. Here, it's more so uh, that John is then able to convince Mance of his true allegiance because Mance witnesses how John is treated at Winterfell. The fact that he's not able to sit up, you know, on the dais with the rest of the Starks when the oh. kings sit down. The fact that he has to sit in the back. Um, and so, I thought that that was. Uh, you know, it was, it was a good thing to kind of bring up here because it, it ties into the larger tale that you were just speaking about. So, but again, though, this, so this story you've just told and spoiler warning, um, is, you know, relevant because I think it lends more credence to the fact that even if the story of Bale is not true, it really kind of gives everybody a, a, a damn good set of instructions for ever gaining access to the, to Winterfell. It'll yeah. totally, you can take their daughters from them and replace their whole bloodline. <laughs> that's, Go that's, forth, my son, and fuck. Well, I, well, th- that's the reason why I wanted to bring it up though, is because I, I wanted to stress the importance level of a lot of the things that George just tends to slip in when he writes. And I think that this, you know, somewhat meaningless story that is tossed out there and maybe a reader wouldn't give a second glance to because John is even dismissive of it. I think just right there, you have 
part one of what she's telling John come true later on in the series. And here's another part that I thought was relevant. And this has been pointed out. I, I was sneaking a peek at some of our owns here. Um, but the fact is no mentioned. No sneak peeking. Hmm? No sneak peeking. No, no sneak, sneak peeking. peeking. I, I, don't worry, Micah. Nothing I, I sneak peeked I, at was behind I, black text. I, 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 Sorry, go ahead. The story of Bale, or rather uh, Brandon's heir, who I do not believe at this point, at this juncture, has a name, is that he later killed Bale. And and this is because Bale would not kill his own son, who is now the Stark heir. They ended up battling at the Frozen Ford. Uh, Brandon's – this Stark lord won because Bale did not want to kill his son. He ends up taking Bale's head – Back on a spike, and at that point, the Stark Lord's mother, who is the young maiden, throws herself off the tallest tower in Winterfell uh, through grief. And this lord himself does not last very long, and Ygritte actually tells John that one of uh, this lord's own um, men ended up taking his skin off and wearing it for a cloak. And And interestingly... We got a complete – this is where I think even readers in the book will do a complete 180 from John. John, it is said, this is the point where he knows the story is false. And for some reason for me, knowing a little bit more about the Boltons and the kind of shit that they get up to when they're having fun, um, I'm thinking, oh my god, this is where the story just got real for me. The fact that eventually somebody flays uh, this this Brandon Stark's heir – and wears them as a cloak. But again, maybe this is historical, or maybe it just foreshadows the upcoming Bolton betrayal that happens at the Red Wedding, which we know from watching the series. I yeah. think I think that that is a great use of the story. And if you pay attention to the small things, um, it does make sense. Absolutely, I think there's a lot of stuff in there, you know, similar to what we read in the Daenerys chapter that we'll be able to go back over time and kind of pick apart and you know analyze and tie to things that happen later on in the series. And I just wanted to say though, that, you know, I, I look at it as not necessarily being spoilerish. I know for you guys, you might look at it as being a spoiler, but I feel like we've passed that point in the, in the television series and it's not going to be brought to light. Um, so it just made sense to, you know, make a brief mention of it here. Yeah. The other thing though, that, uh, I wanted to, to bring up and it, it ties back a little bit to, uh, when John realized that Egret was, in fact, a woman as opposed to a man, uh, I think it just really continues to showcase these powerful female characters that George Martin creates. And I think that it's a shock to John that a woman could possibly be, you know, free in this sense, fighting for herself, doing what she wants. And I think it's it's almost a weakness on his part that he doesn't consider her to be somewhat equal, at least not right now, because that's why he's willing to let her go. If it was a guy, he would have killed him right. just as easily as the other. He's so stupid. He's this is like this is like Jack in Titanic. You're so stupid, Rose. Um, <laughs> this is what I want to shout at Jon Snow. They've already said that. Look, the men, and this is the end of the chapter, but the men have said it to him. Look, we could be scaling another mountain just like this one. We could be crossing in the middle of nowhere. A single yell, a single whoop, you know, will echo off all the mountains and people will hear us. People will know it. A single one. 
and and she she could betray us all. It wouldn't take any effort. She's a liability. She cannot be retained. And they all just <laughs> leave, <laughs> which is you know Corin Halfhand's doing. He says, "Oh, it'd be easier if." Nobody's watching, but they all just like, they believe that John knows and, and he should know that she simply, there is no like halfway about this. She can't stay for those reasons. She will betray them. She is a wildling. It is what she does. It's just a, it's just a contrast in culture though. Don't you agree? What, what we have north of the wall as opposed to what we have south of the wall and sort of the role, uh, that the woman plays. Okay. Are you, are you buying or selling that? I, I, I'll trade it. I'll trade it. I'll trade it. <laughs> I'll barter. Can we, can we barter, Mike? If I could do like an auctioneer's voice right now, I would totally do it. I think, I think, I think, Micah, I think where I agree is that he's instilling these values that he places on the women of the South into her. You know, the fact that I, I mentioned this earlier, the fact that she's telling him a story, it's a very motherly thing to do. Not that Catelyn ever told him stories, which is why I think my analogy fails. Um, but it is a very motherly thing. I think she's warming or he's warming to her because she does all these things like a, any girl that he knows would do. What he's failing to realize is she's not any other girl. She is a wildling. If, if the, if Asha, you know, I, I forget if Jon Snow was present when Asha was was captured or anything, but it, it, essentially that lesson should have taught all of us. It certainly taught us as readers that these wildlings are not to be trusted. But he, she has manipulated him almost without trying. She, you know, there's this point where she tells him to kill her, and you know, blessed, only make it quick. And she is there with her head down. It's not like she outsmarts him. It's really actually not. And, and perhaps this is what, what's so poetic about it is that it is nothing but John's own resolve that fails him, that makes him or makes it so she, she gets to live. You know, he actually touches, is it Longclaw to the back of her neck and marks the spot where he's going to cut her head off. And, you know, the chapter ends with him just, he can't do it. And he says, just go. Um, but it's really nothing that she does right at this point to outsmart him. Later, at least if things play out in the TV series where she kicks his ass, uh, in battle, you know, then that could be said, you know, that it's her fault. But really, this is all on John, uh, the, right. the, the, the way that she escapes. Right. Well, he does let her go. I mean, <laughs> I would almost say it's a mistake on the part of Corrin Halfhand, though, to, to leave him to, this responsibility because clearly he's shown lack of judgment in the sense that he took her captive. Right. And, and he's staying to the true ways of, you know, Ned really well, honor. She yielded. Well, only asked after you asked her if she would yield. Usually it doesn't work like that. Usually the person <laughs> says I yield. You don't ask them if they yield. Right. Cause yielding grants them certain rights. I think you're right here. And, and, and you know what? George mentions that at the very end, uh, when John is hesitating, he's got his sword over her. Um, John's a thought that a raised random thought that goes a stray random thought that goes through his head is, uh, I am my father's son. Aren't I? Aren't I? Aren't I? Aren't I? And, 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 and not all the as confusion as to John Snow's lineage aside, uh, that goes on in this chapter and every other. It plagues this series. Um, the idea of Ned Stark as this honorable man who could never kill somebody who yield uh, or who yielded, or, or at the very least that he swings his own sword, you know, he passes his sense, he swings his sword. So, 
this is where John fails though. It's almost defiant. It's almost like him saying, I'm not a Stark. It's almost like him saying, I am the descendant of Bale, this wildling king beyond the wall, who I now have allegiance to and will not kill a sister of mine. It's, it's weird. He quickly gains a family member, I think, in this, in this chapter. That's, uh, that's pretty intense, that thought process. Uh, so I definitely give you credit for that. What I want to know though is I want to know now that Ygritte has gotten away, which is how the chapter comes to an end, what would you give your own of this chapter to? Because there's a lot. We talked about a lot. Uh, well, as if there aren't enough white things all around them, snow, ice, everything... Uh, I've already mentioned this. Egret's teeth, her dental work. I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> whoever's, whoever's the dental, whoever's the hygienist north of the wall, really just, my hat goes off to you, sir. Uh, obviously they're, they're short of steel. They can't give people little retainers. Maybe they're not iron crafters quite the way that you would find in, in Bravos or Myrrh. But, um, however it is that she keeps her teeth so pearly white, because that is the first thing that attracts, uh, John to her. So I'm going to give it to her teeth. That's a very obscure own, Eric. I give you credit for that. I like it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to give my own to Stone Snake. It's grittier than an 80s metal hair band or hair metal band. I said that backwards. <laughs> but I think he gets the own for his quick disposal of the bodies. I just – it was bold and George even wrote the curse blat when it hit the surface of the rock very, very <laughs> far underneath them. So I, I just can't... think in general owns all around Uncle Ray. Uh, and Uncle Stone Snake, they get it. They get the own. Curse Splat. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see the Game of Thrones comic book. <laughs> just... Biff. <laughs> <laughs> Biff. Ugh. Curse Splat. Oh, man. And then not to mention this whole chapter was uh, underscored by the sound of these cats <laughs> ripping apart these bodies as, as Egret was telling her story. I mean, this is just one of those raw moments. And the wind howling like a, uh, a maiden who had lost her child or whatever. So... Yeah, that's good, good, good one on George. Uh, I have to give it to Corrin Halfhand. He has a very simple line when he says, fire is life up here, but it can be death as well. And that is one of the first lines of the chapter, if not the first. And I think, you know, in terms of being extra poetic or setting the mood, it works perfectly. It's one of the reasons that I think this chapter is probably among my favorite. It's definitely among my top five in this book. And and we've read 50 now chapters, guys. We have roughly 19 or 18 more to go. Um, but Damn. this stands out there. Yeah. This stands out there. And, you know, one of the funniest things that I saw today was something that we posted on Facebook about our upcoming chapters this week. And it stated that Sansa was sandwiched between two Jon Snow chapters. And I just thought that was funny because, of course, we will be getting back to Jon Snow sooner than any of us could have hoped. Well, he's not the next chapter, but uh, Sansa is the next chapter. And after that, we get Jon Snow right back. So we will not be left hanging too too hard, I hope, on what becomes of Ygritte and if he is able to follow her, if he does follow her, or if she rats out his men and, and gets a bunch of them killed. We'll have to find out very shortly. But speaking of the certain other chapters that we do, we have a bunch of owns. We love you guys for sending these in of former episodes and upcoming episodes. We always seek out owns via our social media platforms. Let me tell you what a few of them are. 
on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Tell us. On Facebook, scroll on our wall at facebook.com slash game of owns. It is rocky and windy up here on the wall, but we plan on visiting a little bit more often because we got a lot of fun things that we love posting on there. Also on Twitter, you can Twitter, you can tweet us at Twitter game us. of owns, Twitter us at game of owns on Twitter. And some of you have, we will be reading those in just a moment. And the third method of contacting us regarding owns or things that you think owned in general is the email address contact at gameofowns.com. Let's start with Facebook here because uh, Jennifer Christian was nice enough to write in and she says, Ygritte's story of Bale the Bard owned the John 6 chapter. When she talked about the winter roses in the Winterfell Garden, I automatically thought of the blue rose growing from the wall of ice from the Danny chapter. Ah. I think it is again a nod to Lyanna Stark and also of John's lineage. I tend to agree. And it's interesting reading back because I don't remember any of this stuff um, from my first read through. So it, it's cool to see that this much was actually placed here. Uh, another piece of foreshadowing that I missed the first time reading this was the part of the story saying that Stark's daughter and the baby had never left Winterfell, but had been there the whole time living in the crypts. From watching season two of Game of Thrones, we know that this was a tactic that Bran and the rest of his crew used to hide from Theon. Man, those crypts. Somebody should really be searching those crypts a little better. Everyone um, goes not it at the same time, so no one did it. <laughs> <laughs> those crypts give me the willies. <laughs> I know that with our read-through on the show that we haven't quite made it to Bran's chapter discussing this, but I never forgot when I read it and could finally breathe a sigh of relief that they were indeed safe from the Ironborn. And then one other comment for this particular chapter on Facebook from Phil Etherington. My own goes to Ygritte for nagging a man to get on with it and finish his work, even when it means cutting off her own head. That's a good own, Phil. That's funny. <laughs> you know, that's a good point, because I don't think at this point she knows that he's that weak. Who knows what anyone else is thinking, really? Oh, she knows. Do you I think mean, she's baiting him? That she you think said, she's baiting Absolutely. Okay. When they were first talking, it was just like, oh, I'm John. How are you? And he, like, fixes his hair. <laughs> she, she had him from the, the get-go. You know, yeah. poor John. Poor John. Poor John. Did he poor do so John. his actions betray him, then? The fact that he didn't kill her right away means he was never going to? Is that it? That's right. Okay. And uh, so if you'd like to, uh, as Eric mentioned, scroll on our wall, you can do so. Uh, just like Phil and Jennifer did. And uh, we'll read them on next Wednesday and Friday's episodes, so you can feel free to leave owns from this chapter, or Sansa, or John, who's returning on Friday. So does anybody want to have a quick musical break as we read these tweets? Let's have a quick musical break. God, what should it be? Uh, Rocky Mountain High by John Denver. Jolene says, finally listened to last week's Game of Thrones, Danny Epp, and it was a maze in caps. I missed so much reading this chapter. I feel enlightened. Hashtag owned. You know, people need to bring back the saying amazeballs. I think that that, uh, I don't know what made me think of that. She used amaze. Uh, so amazeballs is, is what we prefer on this show. You heard but, it here, uh, folks. Thank you the no, same. No, thank we you. prefer uh, camel balls, actually. On oh, amaze camel balls. There we go. We do. I prefer from John Webster. <laughs> he <laughs> says, just listen to Brand 6. Seriously, Eric, what the frack? 
BSG reference, a man of my own heart. The rest of you get my own for laying the smack down. Big smiley face. I love that the smiley smack face. Down? It's very what friendly. Happened to, what happened to Brand 6? You guys smacked me down? Uh, I think, I don't remember. You were talking about Theon, and we were just like, don't. <laughs> he's, he sucks or something like that. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that sounds right. about right. That's fine, John. That's fine. Home team won. Oh, yeah. Uh, Andy Robillard also treated it. Treated. Uh, <laughs> he, always, he always treats us, but he also tweeted. Uh, and he said the reeds get the own for being, quote, unnatural, eating mud, breathing swamp water, and moss vice hair. Or Big Walder for comedy. Yeah, there was that little bit of uh, fray uh, humor when uh, Theon was riding off to try and find Bran and Rickon, and he flipped quicker than a flapjack. <laughs> Go on. I, I don't know the rest of it. I was just going to say flipped quicker than a flapjack being tossed in the air by a breakfast-making <laughs> fat chef. Now I'm so hungry. Big old Damn chef. it, Micah. All right, well, I'm going to flip next to this. I'm going to flip to this next tweet faster than uh, a Skittle sliding down a table when you're trying to grab it real quick. Ash T writes in, so mad when people say John can't be Targaryen. Viserys was one, and he died of burns. Not all Targaryens have Danny's power. Grr. No, no, T. I have to completely completely uh, reference or address this comment right now. I agree. Okay, Uh-oh. I agree with you. Yes, right I agree now. with you. We said that John can't be a Targaryen. There's there's actually a difference here. I'm saying that John cannot be uh, the blood of the dragon. The way that most people want John to be a Targaryen, they want him to have the same power that Danny has, which is obviously it's it's against fire. And 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 this is another chapter again where he's climbing the rocks and his hand is hurt, the hand that was burned. And so I still believe that he wasn't. Uh, a Targaryen. I, I guess I can see what you're saying here, that not all Targaryens had the blood of the dragon, but what's the point in Jon Snow's big reveal being that he's secretly a Targaryen if it doesn't mean that he has these magical powers? It's just because he's an heir? I guess that makes sense. I'm defeating my own argument here, aren't I? Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, here's uh, something that might pick you up. Uh, Joshua Green tweeted in to say, Found it funny Eric said we listen with our ear holes. Eric's last name is Skull. Make the connection. Uh, I was just borrowing something Zach said, used to say. Hashtag need sleep. No, he's saying because your last name is Skull and your ears are attached to your skull. I told you my real name, guys, was uh, actually Skigarix of Skull Ghost. Pam also (laughs) tweeted in. She said, just heard that Game of Owns is going to be at LeakyCon 2014. So psyched. And yes, we will uh, talk a little bit about that towards the end of the show. Justine Morris says, I'm currently listening to Game of Bones instead of writing my paper. Hashtag procrastination at its finest. Finest! (laughs) Andrew Erb says, in French class, I was asked to make a genealogy. I did one of House Stark and presented it to the class. (laughs) Rhaegar was included. Yeah. Hmm. Bold of you, sir. Did you get graded down because it's not fact yet? I'm interested to know. <laughs> interested to know. All right, well, before the music decides to stop talking to us, we shall read a few things from winnerscoming.net, the comments that you write in. It's like the longer place when you feel like not writing an email and not writing a tweet. It's just right in that middle zone. It's perfectly the right temperature. Yes, these are the Goldilocks comments. Uh, first, on the brand chapter, which aired last Friday. This is Ironborn, Iron Throne. Uh, they say Owen definitely goes to Osha for this chapter. Sex and wolves, baby. 
Now, oh, yeah, if she could, now, if she could only stop everyone from confusing her with Theon's sister. Oh, wait, Benioff and Weiss did this with Yara Greyjoy. Uh, and we had comments for our Tyrion chapter, which aired previously on Wednesday. That comment comes from Hodor's Bastard, who says, <laughs> Absolutely enjoyed your commentary, ZNM. That's Zach and Micah for those of you playing at home. Those uh, of you playing at home. After reading this chapter back in 2001, props. I was thoroughly impressed how GRRM, that's George R.R. R. Martin for those of you playing at home, <laughs> painted a typical day's work in the life of the king's hand. The fact that it was Tyrion, a three-foot, eight-inch dwarf, handling all this crazy activity and information made it even more interesting. Plus, from the immense wildfire fire discovery, to the Greyjoy thoughts, to the magic discussion implying the dreaded spiritual supernatural reawakening that the world is experiencing... Much historical and political knowledge is dispersed to the reader and sets the pace for the upcoming battle, civil unrest, sir shenanigans, including Kettleblack, Blount, Bywater, and Swan, and the events in A Storm of Swords. What a great reread. If only the three whores and the great Blackwater chain were explored further on Game of Thrones. Carry on, <laughs> sirs. The Antlermen and Trebuchets. What a match. A match indeed. I would agree. And uh, those three whores and the Great Blackwater Chain are things that we will read later on in this book. Speaking of matches, here is a nice match for you. Game of Owns and iTunes. Yes, that's right. We are on the (laughs) iTunes store. We have been, and people love us there. And if you enjoyed listening to us, we ask that you write a rate, uh, or that you write a rate. That you rate us and write a review using the iTunes uh, interface. I can tell Eric's done this before. Yes. Eric's very modestly. This and is, they love the, us there. They, they do love <laughs> us there. And, and there's a good reason for that, Micah. Why is that? They love us because we just keep sending people over there to uh, rate and review this no, podcast. No, no, that's not it. They love us because nothing less than five stars is acceptable. Oh, of course. On the iTunes store. And this week, we're bringing back a very special, special part of our incentive to you, the listener, for rating us on iTunes, because we just don't have enough of those. This week, we're bringing back a threat. We are, really? Yes. Are we? Yes, indeed. I'm it's scared. Monday. It's Monday, and that means it's threat time. <laughs> All right. Well, if we're going to have a threat, I need to know who's going to do it now, because I've got a miniature-sized sting in my left hand, and I've got a burnt napkin in my right hand. So I'm ready. Who's going to give out the threat? It's not going to be me. So, uh, as Eric mentioned, it is the month of November, so nothing less than five stars is acceptable. And here's the deal. If you do not rate us five stars, we will tie you up on a mountain pass where the White Walkers will converge on you from one side and Shadow Cats <laughs> will converge on you from the other. Oh, no. <laughs> Only by rating us five stars, and at this point you're tied up, so you must use your mobile device. Yes. Uh, your hands are free. I can just see people <laughs> on their iPhones and they're tied up somewhere. Just We're so addicted to technology. This will release the matches that Eric previously mentioned from the sky. <laughs> they will fall down upon you, hopefully not burning you. Hopefully you have the blood of the dragon. Hopefully. Yes, like Jon Snow does. And this will free you from your ropes and it will allow you to escape. Whether you escape or not is up to you, though. So you're kind of up Shit's Creek without a paddle. Yes. Yeah, it's his Let's creek. Face it, okay. Because even if you escape, where are you going to go? Are you going to outrun a shadow cat? Uh, I'll be there you... to toss them right off the cliff, you know, just in case. <laughs> just in well, case. They like dead things, so maybe they'll go after the whites. We don't know. 
I got a um, goblin glider attached to my pack, and I'm just going to glide the whole way and down. And if all else fails, you can always self it. That felt good. I hadn't given a threat in a while. so uh, Cathartic, right? And, uh, you know, speaking of things that make you feel good, Pam mentioned it earlier when we were reading the tweets. We will be at LeakyCon 2014 in Orlando, Florida this summer, July 30th through August 3rd, taking place at the Orange County Convention Center. Those looking to register for LeakyCon or to check it out, um, can find the link in our show notes for this episode. Also, we will have more information uh, forthcoming. Please stay tuned to our Facebook and our Twitter, which we've given you the address. You've got it. Now go there. Yes, my friends. We'll be there with bells on. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll speak to you on Wednesday. gonna try to say something funny say good night micah good night micah i can't think of anything i'm patrick star (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you can't be patrick star spongebob